thank you for listening to Mapping the Zone, a podcast dedicated to informal discussion of the works and context of Thomas Pynchon. My name is Kate, and I am uh, alone recording this right now because after our discussion with Brett circled so heavily around Pynchon's essay, Is It Okay to Be a Luddite, published October 28th of 1984, I thought that maybe it would be a good idea just to include a reading of that article for everybody so that you can kind of understand the whole context of why it is that we were talking about it for so long and why it is that it may provide some actual information that would be good to keep in mind when considering the thematic intention of a book like Mason and Dixon. This is almost certainly written alongside probably the final periods of drafting that Pinchon was doing for Mason and Dixon. That book was published in 1997. As we have said multiple times on other episodes of the podcast, this essay came out in 1984, late in the year. So certainly it would take place alongside the drafting of Mason and Dixon in general, but likely was written somewhere close to the end of Thomas Pinchon's work on that novel. And so it's not any sort of stretch of the imagination to imagine that a lot of the things that he speaks about in this particular essay and the kind of overall basic gestalt of what he's trying to get at with this essay feature heavily within what he's trying to do with Mason and Dixon. And so just for the sake of being kind of exhaustive and giving you, the listener, all of the resources that that I possibly can and that we possibly can to help understand this book along with us, I figured it'd be a good idea just to provide a reading of it in case you can't find the article or in case you're someone who does better listening to things read out. Um, And so that's what this episode kind of represents. We may also have an opportunity to discuss the article further and break down its content And if we do so, that will be placed at the end of the actual reading so that you can also sort of get some of our of our trademark discussion points that you've grown so used to to experiencing over the course of of reading this book. But without further ado, October 28th, 1984, Is It Okay to Be a Luddite by Thomas Pynchon, originally published in the New York Times Review of Books. As if being 1984 weren't enough, it's also the 25th anniversary this year of C.P. Snow's famous Reed Lecture, The Two Cultures and the Scientific Revolution, notable for its warning that intellectual life in the West was becoming increasingly polarized into literary and scientific factions, each doomed not to understand or appreciate the other. The lecture was originally meant to address such matters as curriculum reform in the age of Sputnik and the role of technology in the development of what would soon be known as the Third World. But it was the two-culture formulation that got people's attention. In fact, it kicked up an amazing row in its day. To some already simplified points, further reductions were made, provoking certain remarks, name-calling, even intemperate rejoiners, giving the whole affair, though attenuated by the mists of time, a distinctly cranky look. Today, nobody could get away with making such a distinction. Since 1959, we have come to live among flows of data more vast than anything the world has ever seen. Demystification is the order of our day. All the cats are jumping out of all the bags and even beginning to mingle. 
We immediately suspect ego insecurity in people who may still try to hide behind the jargon of a speciality or pretend to some database forever beyond the reach of a layman. Anybody with the time, literacy, and access fee these days can get together with just about any piece of specialized knowledge she, he may need. So, to that extent, the two cultures' quarrel can no longer be sustained. As a visit to any local library or magazine rack will easily confirm, there are now so many more than two cultures that the problem has really become how to find the time to read anything outside one's own speciality. What has persisted after a long quarter century is the element of human character, C.P. Snow, with the reflexes of a novelist after all, sought to identify not only two kinds of education, but also two kinds of personality. Fragmentary echoes of old disputes, of unforgotten offense taken in the course of a long high-table chit-chat, may have helped form the subtext for Snow's immoderate and thus celebrated assertion. If we forget the scientific culture, and the rest of intellectuals have never tried, wanted, or been able to understand the Industrial Revolution. It's a quotation. Such intellectuals, for the most part literary, were supposed by Lord Snow to be natural Luddites. Except maybe for Brainy Smurf. It's hard to imagine anybody these days wanting to be called a literary intellectual, though it doesn't sound so bad if you broaden the labeling to say, people who read and think. Being called a Luddite is another matter. It brings up such questions as, is there something about reading and thinking that would cause or predispose a person to turn Luddite? Is it okay to be a Luddite? And come to think of it, what is a Luddite anyway? Historically, Luddites flourished in Britain from about 1811 to 1816. They were bands of men, organized, massed, anonymous, whose object was to destroy machinery used mostly in the textile industry. They swore allegiance not to any British king, but to their own King Ludd. It isn't clear whether they called themselves Luddites, although they were so termed by both friends and enemies. C.P. Snow's use of the word was clearly polemical, wishing to imply an irrational fear and hatred of science and technologies. Luddites had, in this view, come to be imagined as the counter-revolutionaries of that industrial revolution, which their modern versions have never tried, wanted, or been able to understand. But the Industrial Revolution was not, like the American and French revolutions of about the same period, a violent struggle with a beginning, middle, and end. It was smoother, less conclusive, more like an accelerated passage in a long evolution. The phrase was first popularized a hundred years ago by the historian Arnold Toynbee, and has had its share of revisionist attention. Lately in the July 1984 Scientific American, here, in, quote, Medieval Roots of the Industrial Revolution, unquote, Terry S. Reynolds suggests that the very early role of the steam engine in 1765 may have been over-dramatized. Far from being revolutionary, much of the machinery that steam was coming to drive had already long been in place, having in fact been driven by water power since the Middle Ages. Nevertheless, the idea of a techno-social revolution in which the same people came out on top as in France and America, has proven of use to many over the years, not least of those who, like C.P. Snow, have thought that in Luddite, they have discovered a way to call those with whom they disagree both politically reactionary and anti-capitalist at the same time. 
But the Oxford English Dictionary has an interesting tale to tell. In 1779, in a village somewhere in Leicestershire, one Ned Ludd broke into a house and in a fit of insane rage, quote-unquote, destroyed two machines used for knitting hosiery. Word got around. Soon, whenever a stocking frame was found sabotaged, this had been going on, says the Encyclopedia Britannica, since about 1710, folks would respond with the same phrase, quote, Ludd must have been here, unquote. By the time his name was taken up by the Frame Breakers of 1812, historical Ned Ludd was well absorbed into the more or less sarcastic nickname King or Captain Ludd, and was now all mystery, resonance, and dark fun. A more than human presence, out in the night, roaming the hosiery districts of England, possessed by a single comic shtick. Every time he spots a stocking frame, he goes crazy and proceeds to trash it. But it's important to remember that the target even of the original assault of 1779, like many machines of the Industrial Revolution, was not a new piece of technology. The stocking frame had been around since 1589, when, according to the folklore, it was invented by the Reverend William Lee out of pure meanness. Seems that Lee was in love with a young woman who was more interested in her knitting than in him. He'd show up at her place, quote, Sorry, Rev, got some knitting, unquote. Quote, what? Again? Unquote. After a while, unable to deal with this kind of rejection, Lee, not like Ned Ludd, in any fit of insane rage, but let's imagine logically and coolly, vowed to invent a machine that would make the hand knitting of hosiery obsolete. And he did. According to the encyclopedia, the jilted cleric's frame, quote, was so perfect in its conception that it continued to be the only mechanical means of knitting for hundreds of years. Unquote. Now, given that kind of time span, it's just not easy to think of Ned Ludd as a technophobic crazy. No doubt what people admired and mythologized about him was for the vigor and single-mindedness of his assault. But the words, quote, fit of insane rage, unquote, are third-hand and at least 68 years after the event. And Ned Ludd's anger was not directed at the machine. Not exactly. I like to think of it more as the controlled, martial arts-type anger of the dedicated badass. There is a long folk history of this figure, the badass. He's usually male, and while sometimes earning the quizzical tolerance of women, is almost universally admired by men for two basic virtues. He is bad, and he is big. Bad meaning not morally evil, necessarily, more like able to work mischief on a large scale. What is important here is the amplifying of the scale, the multiplication of effect. The knitting machines which provoked the first Luddite disturbances had been putting people out of work for well over two centuries. Everybody saw this happening. It became part of daily life. They also saw the machines coming more and more to be the of men who did not work, only owned and hired. It took no German philosopher, then or later, to point out what this did, had been doing, to wages and jobs. Public feeling about the machines could never have been simple, unreasoning horror, but likely something more complex. The love-hate that grows up between humans and machinery, especially when it's been around for a while. Not to mention serious resentment towards at least two multiplications of effect that were seen as unfair and threatening. One was the concentration of capital that each machine represented, and the other was the ability of each machine to put a certain number of humans out of work, 
to be quote-unquote worth that many souls. What gave King Lud his special bad charisma took him from local hero to nationwide public enemy was that he went up against these amplified, multiplied, more-than-human opponents and prevailed. When times are hard, and we feel at the mercy of forces many times more powerful, don't we, in seeking some equalizer, turn, if only in imagination, in wish, to the badass, the djinn, the golem, the hulk, the superhero, who will resist what otherwise would overwhelm us? Of course, the real or secular frame-bashing was still being done by everyday folks, trade unionists ahead of their time, using the night and their own solidarity and discipline to achieve their multiplications effect. It was open-eyed class war. The movement had its parliamentary allies, among them Lord Byron, whose maiden speech in the House of Lords in 1812 compassionately argued against a bill proposing, among other repressive measures, to make frame-breaking punishable by death. Quote, Are you not near the Luddites? Unquote. He wrote from Venice to Thomas More, Quote, By the Lord, if there's a row, but I'll be among ye. How go on the weavers, the breakers of frames, the Lutherans of politics, the reformers? Unquote. He includes an, quote, amiable chanson, unquote, which proves to be a Luddite hymn so inflammatory that it wasn't published till after the poet's death. The letter is dated December 1816. Byron had spent the previous summer in Switzerland, cooped up for a while in the Villa Diodati with the Shelleys, watching the rain come down while they all told each other ghost stories. By that December, as it happened, Mary Shelley was working on Chapter 4 of her novel Frankenstein, or the modern Prometheus. If there were such a genre as the Luddite novel, this one, warning of what can happen when technology and those who practice it get out of hand, would be the first and among the best. Victor Frankenstein's creature also surely qualifies as a major literary badass. Quote, I resolved, Victor tells us, to make the being of a gigantic stature. That is to say, about eight feet in height and proportionably large. Unquote. Which takes care of big. The story of how he got to be so bad is at the heart of the novel, sheltered innermost told to Victor in the first person by the creature himself, then nested inside of Victor's own narrative, which is nested in turn in the letters of the Arctic explorer Robert Walton. However, much of Frankenstein's longevity is owing to the undersung genius James Whale, who translated it to film. It remains today more than well worth watching, for all the reasons we read novels, as well as for the much more limited question of its Luddite value. That is, for its attempt, through literary means which are nocturnal and deal in disguise, to deny the machine. Look, for example, at Victor's account of how he assembles and animates his creature. He must, of course, be a little vague about the details, but we're left with a procedure that seems to include surgery, electricity, though nothing like Whale's galvanic extravaganzas, chemistry, even, from the dark hints about Periclesis and Albertus Magnus, the still recently discredited form of magic known as alchemy. What is clear, though, despite the commonly depicted bolt through the neck, 
is that neither the method nor the creature that results is mechanical. This is one of several interesting similarities between Frankenstein and an earlier tale of the bad and big. The Castle of Otranto, 1765, by Horace Walpole, usually regarded as the first gothic novel. For one thing, both authors, in presenting their books to the public, used voices not their own. Mary Shelley's preface was written by her husband, Percy, who was pretending to be her. Not till 15 years later did she write an introduction to Frankenstein in her own voice. Walpole, on the other hand, gave his book an entire made-up publishing history, claiming it was a translation from medieval Italian. Only in his preface to the second edition did he admit authorship. The novels are also of strikingly similar nocturnal origin. Both resulted from episodes of lucid dreaming. Mary Shelley, that ghost story Summer in Geneva, trying to get sleep one midnight, suddenly beheld the creature being brought to life. The images arising in her mind, quote, with a vividness far beyond the usual bounds of reverie, unquote. Walpole had awakened from a dream. Quote, of which all I could remember was that I had thought myself in an ancient castle, and that on the uppermost banister of a great staircase I saw a gigantic hand in armor. Unquote. In Walpole's novel, this hand shows up as the hand of Alfonso the Good, former prince of Otranto, and despite his epithet, the castle's resident badass. Alfonso like Frankenstein's creature, is assembled from pieces. Sable-plumed helmet, foot, leg, sword, all of them, like the hand quite oversized, which fall from the sky or just materialize here and there about the castle grounds, relentless as Freud's slow return of the repressed. The activating agencies, again like those in Frankenstein, are non-mechanical, the final assembly of the form of Alfonso, dilated to an immense magnitude, is achieved through supernatural means, a family curse, and the intercession of Otranto's patron saint. The craze for Gothic fiction after the castle of Otranto was grounded, I suspect, in deep and religious yearnings for that earlier mythical time, which had come to be known as the Age of Miracles. In ways more and less literal, folks in the 18th century believed that once upon a time all kinds of things had been possible, which were no longer so. Giants, dragons, spells. The laws of nature had not been so strictly formulated back then. What had once been true working magic had, by the age of reason, degenerated into mere machinery. Blake's dark satanic mills represented an old magic that, like Satan, had fallen from grace. As religion was being more and more secularized into deism and non-belief, the abiding human hunger for evidence of God and afterlife, for salvation, bodily resurrection, if possible, remained. The Methodist movement and the American Great Awakening were only two sectors on a broad front of resistance to the Age of Reason, a front which included radicalism and Freemasonry as well as Luddites and the Gothic novel. Each in its way expressed the same profound unwillingness to give up elements of faith, however irrational, to an emerging techno-political order that might or might not know what it was doing. Gothic became code for medieval, and that has remained code for miraculous. 
on through pre-Ralphites. Turn of the century tarot cards. Space opera in the pulps and the comics. Down to Star Wars and the contemporary tales of sword and sorcery. To insist on the miraculous is to deny to the machine at least some of its claims on us. To assert the limited wish that living things, earthly and otherwise, may on occasion become bad and big enough to take part in transcendent doings. By this theory, for example, King Kong, question mark to 1933, becomes your classic Luddite saint. The final dialogue in the movie, you recall, goes, Well, the airplane's got him. No, it was beauty killed the beast. In which, again, we encounter the same Snowvian disjunction, only different between the human and the technological. But if we do insist upon fictional violations of the laws of nature, of space, time, thermodynamics, and the big one, mortality itself, then we risk being judged by the literary mainstream as insufficiently serious. Being serious about these matters is one way that adults have traditionally defined themselves against the confidently immortal children they must deal with. Looking back on Frankenstein, which she wrote when she was 19, Mary Shelley said, quote, I have an affection for it, for it was the offspring of happy days when death and grief were but words which found no true echo in my heart, unquote. The Gothic attitude in general because it used images of death and ghostly survival toward no more responsible end than special effects and cheap thrills, was judged not serious enough and confined to its own part of town. It is not the only neighborhood in the great city of literature, so let us say closely defined. In westerns, the good people always win. In romance novels, love conquers all. In whodunitses, we know better. We say, but the world isn't like that. These genres, by insisting on what is contrary to fact, fail to be serious enough, and so they get redlined under the label escapist fair. This is especially unfortunate in the case of science fiction, in which the decade after Hiroshima saw one of the most remarkable flowerings of literary talent, and quite often genius in our history. It was just as important as the beat movement going on at the same time, certainly more important than mainstream fiction, which with only a few exceptions has been paralyzed by the political climate of the Cold War and McCarthy years. Besides being a nearly ideal synthesis of the two cultures, science fiction also happens to have been one of the principal refuges of our time for those of Luddite persuasion. By 1945, the factory system, which more than any piece of machinery was the real and major result of the Industrial Revolution, had been extended to include the Manhattan Project, the German long-range rocket program, and the death camps such as Auschwitz. It has taken no major gift of prophecy to see how these three curves of development might plausibly converge and before too long. Since Hiroshima, we have watched nuclear weapons multiply out of control, and delivery systems acquire, for global purposes, unlimited range and accuracy. An unblinking acceptance of a holocaust running to seven and eight-figure body counts has become among those who, particularly since 1980, have been guiding our military policies conventional wisdom. To people who were writing science fiction in the 50s, none of this was any much of a surprise. 
Though modern Luddite imaginations have yet to come up with any counter-critter bad and big enough, even in the most irresponsible of fictions, to begin to compare with what would happen in a nuclear war. So, in the science fiction of the Atomic Age and the Cold War, we got to see the Luddite impulse to deny the machine taking a different direction. The hardware angle got de-emphasized in favor of a more humanistic concern. Exotic cultural evolutions and social scenarios, paradoxes and games with space and time, wild philosophical questions, most of it sharing as the critical literature has amply discussed, a definition of human as particularly distinguished from machine. Like their earlier counterparts, 20, 20th century Luddites looked back yearningly to another age. Curiously, the same age of reason which had forced the first Luddites into nostalgia for the age of miracles. But we now live, we are told, in the computer age. What is the outlook for Luddite sensibility? Will mainframes attract the same hostile attention as knitting frames wanted? I really doubt it. Writers of all descriptions are stampeding to buy word processors. Machines have already become so user-friendly that even the most unreconstructed of Luddites can be charmed into laying down the old sledgehammer and stroking a few keys instead. Beyond this seems to be a growing consensus that knowledge really is power, that there is a pretty straightforward conversion between money and information, and that somehow, if the logistics can be worked out, miracles may yet be possible. If this is so, Luddites may at last have come to stand on common ground with their Snovian adversaries. The cheerful army of technocrats who were supposed to have the future in their bones, quote-unquote. It may be only a new form of the perennial Luddite ambivalence about machines, or it may be that the deepest Luddite hope of miracle has now come to reside in the computer's ability to get the right data to those whom the data will do the most good. With the proper deployment of budget and computer time, we will cure cancer, save ourselves from nuclear extinction, grow food for everybody, detoxify the results of industrial greed gone berserk, realize all the wistful pipe dreams of our days. The word Luddite continues to be applied with contempt to anyone with doubts about technology, especially the nuclear kind. Luddites today are no longer faced with human factory owners and vulnerable machines. As well-known president and unintentional Luddite D.D. Eisenhower prophesied when he left office, there is now a permanent power establishment of admirals, generals, and corporate CEOs, up against whom us average poor bastards are all completely outclassed. Although Ike didn't quite put it that way. We are all supposed to keep tranquil and allow it to go on, even though, because of the data revolution, it becomes every day less possible to fool any of the people any of the time. If our world survives, the next great challenge to watch out for will come, you heard it here first, when the curves of research and development in artificial intelligence, molecular biology, and robotics all converge. Oh boy. It will be amazing and unpredictable, and even the biggest of brass, let us devoutly hope, are going to be caught flat-footed. It is certainly something for all good Luddites to look forward to if, God willing, we should live long so. Meantime, as Americans, we can take comfort, however minimal and cold, 
Lord Byron's mischievously improvised song, in which he, like other observers of the time, saw clear identification between the first Luddites and our own revolutionary origins. It begins, As the liberty lads o'er the sea Bought their freedom and cheaply with blood, So we, boys, we, Will die fighting or live free, And down with all kings but King Lud. Thank you all, as always, for listening to Mapping the Zone. Our podcast, as always, is dedicated to informal discussion on the works and context of Thomas Pinchon. My name is Kate. We'll see you in the next episode.